Hello, and welcome back to the Agents of Change, an environmental justice podcast brought to you by the George Washington Milken Institute School of Public Health and Environmental Health News at ehn.org. I'm Brian Binkowski, your host, senior editor at Environmental Health News and the editor of Agents of Change. A quick reminder before we get to things today, we are now accepting applications for our next round of Agents of Change Fellows. You can get all of the information about the fellowship and you can apply at agentsofchangeinej.org. As I've mentioned before, we rely on support and one of those supporters is Beauty Counter, a clean beauty brand on a mission to get safer products into the hands of everyone. Over 1,800 questionable ingredients are never used in their product formulations and they advocate tirelessly for safer industry regulations because they believe beauty should be good for you. You can learn more at beautycounter.com. Today's guest hanging out with me is Dr. Teresa Gillette, an environmental scientist at Arcadis. Gillette, a former Agents of Change fellow, talks all about her research on alligators and fish as sentinel species for environmental health and how PFAS is moving through our ecosystems. She also talks about her love of the outdoors from a young age, which I could so relate to. Enjoy. All right. I am super happy to be joined by Teresa Gillette. Teresa, how are you doing today? Doing well, thank you. A little bit cold, but I guess I'm just getting used to winter. <laughs> yes, I know. Winter is upon us. Well, when this when this broadcasts, it'll probably be the middle of winter. But yes, it, it, is, it is getting winter here where I'm at too. And where are you at? I am in Research Triangle Park, North Carolina. So I don't quite have your winters, um, but still coming from Texas, pretty cold for me. <laughs> yes. So Research Triangle Park, remind me, is that Durham, Raleigh? Yeah. So kind of the Durham, Raleigh area. Excellent. Yeah. A lot of universe, a lot of, a lot of stuff going on down there. Oh, yeah. It's a great hotspot for toxicological research with the NIEHS right here and the EPA as well, and a lot of um, biotechnology companies and industry as well. So that's a great spot for research. Yeah, excellent. And I want to get into some of your research, but I want to start, I want to go way back for a little bit here. And you recently published an essay for us about access to outdoor spaces for young people of color. And you mentioned fishing with your dad and hiking and camping, and I can really I can really relate to that. And just kind of a general love for things outdoors. So tell me a little bit about your upbringing and what role these these outdoors played in shaping you. Yeah, so I come from a family of three girls. Um, I think my dad really wanted a boy. <laughs> so <laughs> we grew up kind of as tomboys, you know, going to sports games, um, going camping, going fishing. My two other sisters got really into sports, but I got really into like hiking and um, just generally being outdoors. They couldn't stand fishing, but I was always the one to say, hey, dad, let's go. Um, funny story. When I was a kid, actually, um, going out for the first time deep sea fishing, <laughs> I think my uh, 
uh, dad probably didn't want to tell my mom about this story when I was younger because <laughs> <laughs> we were one of the only boats to go out. There was a big storm and probably like eight or nine foot swells. And we were the only boat to go out and we all got sick, just horribly, horribly <laughs> sick. <laughs> and coming back in, I'm pretty sure my dad has, you know, made it seem a little less uh, intense than it was. <laughs> <laughs> there is a there is a different sickness when there's seasickness. It is that is such an awful feeling. You know, it's the one and only time I've ever been seasick in my life. Um, and I don't know if it's you know starting out younger and then just being exposed to that and being fine for the rest of it. But it was definitely a, a memorable experience. I caught my first big red drum though, so that was exciting. That is very exciting. I I am from the Great Lakes, so I got sick one time. We don't have to talk about seasickness the whole time, but I got <laughs> sick one time on a salmon boat, and it was because I went underneath in the cab, the cabin. I was a young, pretty young boy at the time, and uh, couldn't see shore anymore. And I think that's that's what did it. But uh, what fun! So would this be the Gulf of Mexico deep sea fishing? Yeah, right out of um, Corpus Christi, Texas. Awesome! Very cool. And so skipping ahead a little bit, as a as a Mexican-American, you said in your undergrad career, you found a lab that had two Hispanic graduate students. And you said without them, you probably wouldn't have applied to graduate school, which I found kind of fascinating. Can you tell me how and why this kind of diversity within the lab was essential to your growth and, and even wanting to pursue, you know, even higher education? Well, I think, you know, um, going to UTSA, where is where I did my bachelor degree, um, you know, I had a lot of professors that were older white guys, um, didn't really see a lot of, of diversity in in established professors there, or even, you know, some major researchers. And so going to a lab and seeing these graduate students and having them really take me under their wing as just this little undergrad that had no idea what I was doing in the lab, but give me hope and just, I guess you could say that it could be done. I guess I, I came from a family of no scientists. Everybody was either working for a company or, or doing something in computer-related IT and so I never really got exposed to um, science in general, other than just kind of my own curiosities. And getting this exposure really early on to these graduate students to give me a little bit of boost of confidence to say like, hey, you can do it. And not just the, hey, you can do it attitude, but the like, these are the steps and the processes to getting there. This is how you break it down. Because right, I, I think everything really seems overwhelming at first when you get into it. And it's really how you approach a problem that it gets smaller. And so your undergraduate, you were in a lab. What were you studying? So I was actually studying um, way different from what I am now. I was doing um, anthrax research. We were looking specifically at how mutations in certain cells could either um, have cells be more or less pervasive uh, to anthrax. So well, a long distance from where I am now. <laughs> And just to tie it back to, to, you know, childhood and the outdoors, I mean, did you, was science something that you, you were interested in just kind of hiking around and seeing bugs and birds and dirt and soil? And, and when you got to undergraduate, you said, hey, I have to get in the lab or was, did that come later on? No, I actually started out as a music major. And then um, I had one um, biology class and one biology teacher that just really, I don't know, set my curiosity on fire. 
And it just kind of grew into this thing of burning questions that I just wanted to ask more and more and more. And I had thought, you know, not really coming from a background of, of knowing a lot about science, I thought that you had to go to med school, you had to do this, like that was the path forward. So I did a summer research experience um, for pre-med students. And once I got into the lab, I haven't been able to get out. <laughs> what kind of music did you play? I was actually a percussionist. Um, so I used to play snare drum, bass drum, a little bit of xylophone, some marimba, um, a little bit of all over. That's awesome. I play uh, the mandolin, which is ironically kind of a percussive instrument in a bluegrass setting. I played bluegrass music uh, on the mandolin and I play pedal steel guitar and acoustic guitar. I got all kinds of instruments around. So that's very cool. I hope you still play. Oh, bit not not too much anymore i am trying to get better at piano because i i first started off with piano like very very young um and i'm just kind of getting back to it now awesome i'm sure you have plenty of free time to be (laughs) dedicating to the piano (laughs) yeah and all my free time (laughs) right so uh another question on this you, you know the the topic of identity comes up a lot on here and you said that you found a mentor in graduate school that had spent some time in mexico and you said he helped reaffirm the richness of your background. Can you tell me a little bit about this and why it took you a while to gain this kind of confidence in your identity? Yeah, so growing up, um, my parents, was my mom specifically, who is uh, the major breadwinner in our house, she never wanted us to learn Spanish. She never wanted us to quote, quote, act Mexican or anything like that. It was, it was very much, she told us from a young age, you live in a white man's world, talk like them, and you'll go far. And so I think for a large part of my childhood and going into the professional setting, like I really hid who I was. And it wasn't until graduate school that I began to understand that like I could embrace this culture and this side of me and really get to know it in a way that I haven't really before. Um, and that was really due to my mentor, my, my first mentor, uh, Lou. He he spent some time doing a lot of field research in Mexico in his in his early in his early life doing some lizard field work and he just had a love for um Hispanic culture and liked talking about it and and liked discussing a couple of these things and so really in my conversations with him getting to know more about myself and getting a little bit more curious about my heritage growing up kind of led me to be confident in who I was and what was that researcher's name? Uh, that was Lou Gillette. Lou Gillette. Oh, my goodness. So Lou Gillette, who is now deceased, is, is am I right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Lou uh, was friends with uh, Pete Myers, who is the founder of Environmental Health News. So I've actually taken Pete Myers out alligator catching before. Well, how about that? Yes, yeah, small world. We're, we're, we're probably getting in the weeds for listeners here. But yes, Lou Gillette is a giant in the field, and it is so good to hear that he... Uh, touched your career early on. That's that's very cool. Very much so. Um, he's now my father. Well, my uh, father-in-law. <laughs> oh, how about that? Whoa, it, the, the connections keep growing. Very, <laughs> very cool. So uh, maybe maybe that was the moment, but I've been asking everybody, what is a defining moment or event that shaped your identity up to this point? So that was, um, I would say graduate school definitely helped me find my identity a little bit more. Um, actually, this was another Lou moment, right? He was so impactful to so many people and and I grew really close to him. 
uh, before he passed. One of the most defining moments that I can remember, though, was on a plane trip to Africa. So about a 17-hour plane trip, <laughs> uh, getting stuck right next to your uh, major PI at the time and just uh, kind of talking for hours while trying to fall asleep. Really, um, I think the imposter sy syndrome hit me hard during that flight, right? Because I was, um, I was, I won a grant to go over there and it was my first major project as a graduate student. And I was so completely overwhelmed and nervous and wasn't sure if this was going to work out. And I remember talking to him and, and just having this moment of him saying, sometimes you have to take a leap of faith in yourself. Sometimes you just have to, to know that you've done everything that you can. You've put all the research hours in. You've you've prepared as best as you can. And sometimes you just have to jump. And that was really impactful for me. And I think it's really defined who I am as a researcher and knowing that I'll do the best I can to prepare, but sometimes you just got to ask the question. Yeah, what what excellent advice. And I feel like it's so apt for so many different scenarios in life where sometimes you just have to you just have to do the thing, even if you don't feel fully prepared and just know, have some confidence in yourself. Well, speaking of music, it's like getting on stage. You just have to, you've put in the practice, you have to go up and do it uh, and, and put yourself out there. And and I know in, in those kinds, some of those settings, it just, there's such a gratifying feeling when you're done, when you're out of your comfort zone like that. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think that that trip in general was just so transformative for me because it got me to really um, be more adaptive as a researcher, right? Like if you go to a field site and then quickly realize like, oh, there's no electricity here or there's no this or that. What do I do? I forgot this. How do you creatively think of solutions to those problems is something that I have used many, many times. <laughs> yeah, I bet. So you've done some really cool work including with, uh, well, you mentioned alligators, crocodiles. So tell me how you got into working with crocodiles and alligators and what your research and graduate school found out about their health. Yeah. So um, I actually had no idea I'd be going into alligator and crocodilian research in general when I started graduate school. I was really interested by um, natural products research and kind of investigating how um, things within nature we could use to create better pharmaceuticals for us. But then on the flip side of this, when I met Lou, that all changed because it was kind of like, well, did you think on the other side of there are things in our environment that actually can do us health, um, can harm our health? And so in a way, studying those can help us understand preventative measures for the future, like what, what's happening and what's in our environment that's actually causing us harm. And I think using the, um, using the alligator, the crocodilian as a sentinel model for human health has been really transformative for me because it's not a mouse, right? Like it's not perfect in any sense of the word. It's not a, a model organism, but it is something that's long lived within our environment. And it's been there for millions of years and will continue to be there. Um, so we can learn a lot by studying their biology and how they're influenced by the environment. So in graduate school, what were you trying to determine about their health or what were you, what, what kind of pollutants were you looking at? So I wasn't so much as looking um, at pollutants in general. Um, so one of the things that I did in graduate school was trying to understand 
how a variety of different pollutants could maybe impact the immune and um, inflammation response in crocodilians. I got really interested by pansteatitis, which is a disease of um, fat inflammation in the crocodiles. And so uh, within South Africa, there is a major die-off of Nile crocodiles there. And um, our lab had started a project to try and understand that a little bit further. And so I, one of the things that I worked on was trying to find biomarkers of exposure so we could better understand using survey techniques how pervasive this disease was, and then further look and say, okay, well, hey, we see a cluster of this, you know, downstream of certain mining operations or this or that. So first, you know, before we do anything, we really want to understand more of the biology of the disease rather than go and look for the bad actors, as you can say. And tell me a little bit about this idea you mentioned versus, say, a mouse, which which is, of course, referring to a lab where you have mice or rodents, and then there's very controlled environments and experience, uh, experiments. So when you're talking about uh, a crocodile or alligator, the benefit you mentioned is kind of their long-lividness <laughs> or, <laughs> or just their kind of being out there in the environment. Tell me about kind of why, why they are an important uh, creature to, to study. I think they're a nice bridge between a model system and um, some epidemiological or human exposure studies where, you know, you can really get deep down into the biology. Of course, we can't ask them if they're sick like we can with humans. Um, But if we can start to see some of these, um, as you can say, phenotypes of disease or problems that they're seeing within the ecosystem, then we can kind of look a little bit further and say, hey, this isn't making sense. Like what's going on here? (laughs) In working with both mice and alligators, I can tell you which one is scarier for me. (laughs) And that's definitely mice. (laughs) In my my first postdoc at NC State with the Belcher Lab, I uh, did a little bit of of rodent work. And uh, on one of my first training days, I shrieked so loudly it was not even funny (laughs) so so something must be wrong with my brain where I see a mouse and think oh that's scary versus I look at a you know 15 foot crocodile and be like oh it's so cute (laughs) well it's all relative right my so my wife here in the upper peninsula of Michigan does some She's a wildlife biologist and they trap uh, Martin and Fisher and also, you, you know, they, they do work with bear and wolves and stuff. And those little Martin, I don't know if you're familiar with Martin and Fisher's, but they are vicious. Oh my things. gosh, they are. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I <laughs> I remember uh, going down the Amazon with my, my husband on a trip one time and seeing some of these vicious ri- river otters. I was like, whoa, those guys are they're crazy. <laughs> right. And there's, and there's, uh, there's different precautions, of course, you're taking if it's a wolf compared to something small like a Martin. And why don't you tell me about that? So when you're give, give the listener, walk us through a little bit when you're, when you're doing alligator or crocodile research and you show up at a field site, a swamp, a river, a lake, what, what do you do? Yeah. Um, so just to take you through it. So we'll kind of, you know, do a survey really quick to understand where we see them. They're a little bit hard to um, see sometimes. They're really great at hiding, um, especially the females. Oh, my gosh. It's so hard to catch a female alligator. <laughs> um 
So as soon as we see one, uh, one of the members of the team will take a a fishing pole, and then that'll have like a, a treble hook connected, which we've um, debarbed to be better to take out of the animal. So we'll snag it really quick, um, get it to the shore as soon as possible, um, put a, a quick dog noose over it, um, then we'll get it on, secure the jaws with duct tape, do a really quick health assessment, get a blood sample, try and get as much um, information that we can from both visual as well as anything else that we see. And then we release it. It's it's really, it can be really, really quick. So I think our fastest time has been probably like seven minutes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some of the bigger animals, like say anything 10 foot plus takes a little bit of time because they are very strong on a fishing pole. <laughs> Um, I mean, once they take off, like, uh, I've seen a couple of uh, very strong men um, be unseated by them quite quickly. (laughs) (laughs) And so it can take quite a bit of muscle to get them in. But once they are, it's it's very quick and smooth. We try to make it as painless for them as possible and as safe as it can be for us as well. Right. And so now you're working on studying PFAS, which I think most people have unfortunately probably heard of by now, and how these toxics migrate through soils and end up in our drinking water. And you're working in two kind of PFAS notorious communities in Parkersburg, West Virginia, and Fayetteville there in North Carolina. So tell me a little bit about this. You know, why why PFAS? Why these communities? And what have you found out so far? Yeah. um, So I think PFAS are really... From a research perspective, they're interesting in the sense that, you know, they're quote unquote emerging, even though they're really not. They've been around since like the 1940s. It's just re- research is really getting um, done on them within the past like 20 or 30 years. And so one of the things that I'm really interested in is exposure in the sense of like how how are communities exposed to these chemicals? Is it primarily think through drinking water is it through diet like all these different routes of exposure what are we seeing how is it getting into these communities because once we have those levels then we can kind of um, take it back to the toxicologist and say okay this is what we're actually seeing in a community both from the water and serum perspective like what's their internal PFAS levels what can you tell me about the the health of this population or things that we should be looking out for um, if we collaborate with human health researchers have you found anything in those communities so far that's that that's been surprising or that that people should know I think, um, especially within the Fayetteville community, one of the things that we found is, unfortunately, this community has higher exposure than our national average. So the um, NHANES, or kind of like these uh, basically average levels of um, toxicological PFAS exposure within communities, we're seeing uh, roughly double the amount, maybe a little bit less than that. And so where this is coming from and how they're being exposed, I think is something that still needs to be uh, determined a little bit more. But unfortunately, we are seeing higher levels in these communities. Eventually, you said you'd like to investigate how PFAS uh, impacts immune systems. And I think I've seen a little bit of research that spoke to this, especially during COVID, saying that our chemical exposures could be uh, exacerbating our, our our impacts to to COVID and, uh, and other other diseases. 
So what do we know about PFAS and the immune system right now? And what would you hope to find out? So uh, the National Toxicology Program has actually concluded that two PFAS in particular, PFOA or C8 and PFOS, so perfluoroactylsulfonate, are presumed to be immune hazards to humans based on this large weight of evidence in both human and um, model organism exposure. So we know that these two compounds in particular are immune hazards. What we're seeing in the environment, um, uh, especially within the North Carolina environment, are that alligators that are living in highly exposed areas actually have some altered immune health compared to alligators living in uh, less exposed areas. And so we're, we're seeing almost like an autoimmune phenotype in the alligator, which was really quite surprising to us and something that gave me a lot of pause in general, just because alligators are in, like they have better immune systems than us. I've seen, I've seen alligators down in Florida, like having their jaws bit off or having like, um, like tails completely bit off. And then the next day, you know, it's almost healed over. It's like, it's, they have incredible immune systems. Like pharmaceutical companies have been trying to, uh, develop antibacterial, um, medications for them from their blood for, you know, a couple of decades now. So when something can affect their immune system, I think it really, um, it really brings into perspective that it can be affecting us as mammals that don't have quite a a good immune system as them. Wonder why their immune systems are so good. Is it because they're swimming in swamps and exposed? It's like when your grandma used to say, you got to play in the dirt to build up your immune system. I wonder if there's, I wonder if there's something to that. Yeah, yeah, I I completely agree with you. I think, you know, having evolved for, you know, a couple hundreds of centuries, they've just become this really perfect predator and perfect um, organism within their environment. And so they're able to live through quite a bit of things and still come out kicking. So they're masters of evolution, and we're just kind of (laughs) learning. So when people hear that, say, crocodiles or alligators have immune system impacts from PFAS, what could we draw to humans? I know they're obviously we are different species, but does it does it is it cause for alarm? It sounds like to you, maybe it is. And, and how much can you draw when you're talking about different species like this? Yeah, you know, I don't I don't think you can make this one to one comparison, right? Because like, I'm obviously not an alligator. (laughs) Although sometimes I wish I was. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I think when it's when you start seeing multiple lines of evidence, so this is impacting an alligator, this is impacting a fish, this is impacting a bird, this is impacting other mammals within the system, I think it it really we're not outside of our environment. We're a part of our environment. And so by taking Rachel Carson's advice and just listening to what's going on around us, we can really understand that, hey, let's uh, let's see what's going on at a, at a better level here. And also just from an ecosystem standpoint, if they are being impacted by these chemicals, that's bad in itself. Even if, exactly. even if we don't have to make it about us, even if it's just affecting uh, th- their species, that is bad too. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that's one thing that I've really loved working on within my career so far is that 
it doesn't always have to be human health related. You know, I think we're, we're coming to a better understanding now that like we need to get on top of this biodiversity crisis and whatever we can do to help that going forward, we need to. So your focus now in, in Park, Parkersburg and in mostly Fayetteville, but PFAS, of course, is a nationwide problem. I know where I live here in Michigan, there are a lot of sites, a lot of problems. So tell me a little bit about how, how your work could help other communities outside these areas, including how it could address some of the environmental justice implications of PFAS exposure. Yeah. So um, while I was doing my ORISE postdoc with uh, the EPA, I was tasked with kind of developing this um, national fish database for um, anglers such as myself uh, to be able to basically map out fish PFAS within the United States, look at their levels and create a public database for people to be able to look through and say like, all right, I live in this city. There are these um, specific detections of PFAS within these specific fish. Uh, Are there any tasty ones that I could eat that maybe don't? Um, So just, I think that this kind of knowledge can really help us understand dietary exposures and bring that more into light, especially within um, communities that use fish as a major source of protein. And I think that happens a lot with um, some indigenous communities. And so having a better understanding of that from a, a, a mapping perspective can only help us. So work like that makes me think about the communication, the outreach aspect, especially trying to reach communities who say, like you said, rely on salmon runs or something, but maybe aren't reading the the latest journal or even getting the, 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 the right newspaper that this is in. So what role has science communication played in your current work and, and what role do you see it playing moving forward? I think communication is everything, really. I, I Whenever... In graduate school, whenever I saw really um, prolific scientists or very um, or people that were just so far ahead in their careers, one thing that I always noticed about them was that they were great communicators. They could speak to students. They could speak at a public event. They could speak to anyone, really, and not dumb down the science because that's not what you want, right? Like, you don't want to ever to do that to people. Um, but I think uh, breaking it down in a way that's not going to isolate people is really important going forward. And right, we've seen that during COVID, um, how public communication can really either help or hurt a situation. So you have already published an essay here with the Agents of Change program. And I I really liked it because I grew up in the outdoors. I am not a person of color, but I will say that the the outdoors as a youth to me and in my teens and twenties made me want to be an environmental journalist, made me, made me who I am, gave me a lot of values outside of just my career. Uh, it was everything to me. And I, and I mean that. So it really touched me. And I'm wondering what that experience was like for you publishing something, not in a journal kind of for the public to digest and how it went, what was the reaction, how, how it felt to have something out there like that? really, really freeing. Like I've done a lot of, um, I've done, you know, scientific publications and things like that and everything very technically focused, but I I think it was really nice to just talk a little bit about um, something personal, but also something that I feel really passionate about and, and not have to have it be like peer reviewed in a way. Right. (laughs) But to just like put it out there and just be myself and 
yeah, I can't, I can't speak highly enough of being able to just be your, your most authentic self out there and put that out to the world and just see how it's received. Excellent. Well, Teresa, this has been so much fun. And I have one last question for you. And what is the last book that you read for fun? Ooh, for fun. That's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> read a lot of books lately, not for fun. But <laughs> so um, my uh, my absolute like fun book of the year that I can't stop thinking about and want the third book to come out already has been the uh, Children of Blood and Bone series by Tommy Adeyemi. Um, and oh, and I I just I love sci-fi or magic stories like complete nerd um not gonna sugarcoat that (laughs) (laughs) and it was just like it was so much it was just a good time like I I think that was one of the first um books or series that I've just like kind of read throughout the night again and just like stayed up all night reading it (laughs) so I have read the Harry I read the Harry Potter series last year and that was my first kind of foray into this genre a little bit although I'm a big graphic novel guys. So so I I do have some, some sci-fi in there, but just give me without spoilers, just give me a quick little glimpse into what this series is is about. Yeah. So this is, um, if you liked Harry Potter, you're definitely going to love this one. So this is kind of within the same realm of, of kind of like magic and, um, like epic adventure. And so this is just, it's like magic and, and sorcery, but in the lens of like West African heritage. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's really told from multiple point of views, but it's about um, some siblings that kind of go through these, um, I guess you could say, transformable adventure series of like how they get their powers and kind of develop into like just magical beings that are able to like help what's going on within their world and so i don't want to spoil anything because it's so good (laughs) right no that is a that's a great teaser and it does sound like as a harry potter fan i might have to get my hands on that oh you're not going to be able to put it down i yeah if you I, i think it's it's really well written in the sense of um having a lot more of west african like heritage and different um different like language dialects and everything. And so it was just a lot of fun, to be honest. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Teresa, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks. I had a great time. All right. That is all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Teresa. She's doing such cool work. It was really fun to talk to. To see more about what she's doing, check out her essay from last year, Nature for All, Connecting Communities of Color with the Outdoors. And you can see that at ehn.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, be a part of it and help us out. Visit agentsofchangeinej.org. And while you're there, click the donate button to support us. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram, and please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, where you can listen to this and all past episodes. The Agents of Change podcast is written, recorded, and edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team. Dr. Amizota, Dr. Yoshida Ornelas Van Horn, Summer Ahmad, Gwen Raniger, Hannah Seo, and Aaron Gomez. We'd like to hear from you. Email us at agentsofchangeinej@gmail.com at gmail.com and sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the new program homepage, agentsofchangeinej.org. 
that newsletter is a great way to stay on top of not only essays and podcasts coming out, but what our fellows are up to in the broader media landscape, webinars, new scientific papers. It's a really great way to stay on top of all the great work that our fellows are doing. Thank you so much for joining me this week. I hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Join me next time when I speak with Cielo Sharkis, a former Agents of Change fellow and current doctoral candidate at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Have a great week, folks.